Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Chris, as you and I discussed what we were thinking about doing this episode, this one just kind of came up organically. It's something that's been on your mind lately, this idea of identity. And I thought that would dovetail nicely with something we haven't done in the past other than in snippets, which is to sort of encapsulate our own stories and what what uh, what makes up our identities in terms of our relationship to the church, the gospel, the religion, whatever, and just kind of put that in one place and then and then use that as a springboard to talk about our own personal identities, where we're at and how we deal with that. And so, you know, you and I have a unique, I think, not wholly unique, but, you know, relatively unique idea of what identity means and how it relates to uh, religion in general and maybe even just our our faith in particular. So maybe that might be a decent place to start is just kind of discuss this idea of identity, the pros and cons, and... Uh, We'll go from there. So what do you think about identity, Chris? Yeah, so one thing uh, I would add is we could really think about this in terms of the first beatitude, right? We can think of this in terms of being poor in spirit can be interpreted as emptying ourselves of identities. Identities that if we've talked about, we've talked a lot about the true self and the false self on this podcast. The false self isn't just one, right? There are many false selves. The true self is one, I think. What do you think? Yeah, one of the things I learned from doing a little study of Hinduism is that there are avatars or personality traits um, or aspects of an individual. In this, in that case, it's Brahma, you know, the supreme creator god. And you have, you know, you have all these other gods that kind of are pictures of that same god, right? So they they represent aspects of that of that individual. And I kind of look at identity the same way. Like we we have we have our true self, the the child of God that's you know uh, eternal, co-eternal with God. We were there in the beginning, and and to that we add all these these little pieces, and that's what makes us unique. And some of those things are healthy, and some of them are not healthy. But eventually, they start to form into an identity. It's it's how we are identified by other people. It's how we might identify ourselves. And those identities, like I said, they can be healthy or unhealthy. And you wouldn't really know what to do with them until you start uh, analyzing them and perhaps even just shedding them altogether. Yeah, I sense a little bit of a tension that I'd, I'd, I'd love to just hold throughout this conversation because we've, we've talked about one true identity and then all other identities being false. But we've also said that that maybe there's a pro and a con or pros and cons to these aspects, or, or even just saying that they're aspects 
it made me think of the names of God or attributes of God, whether when I say names of God, I think of the Islamic tradition, but we have the same idea in our, in our own tradition in the Christian tradition of different attributes of God. And then the other thing that occurs to me in in this, in connection with this conversation is going back to the myth of the eternal return again, the, the book by Mircea Eliade subtitled Cosmos and History, this idea that well, first, as Latter-day Saints, we feel like individuality is really important and, and even eternal. It's something that's eternal. And, and yet it looks like, you know, when you look at what Eliade is saying, that in traditional society, individual, anything that would be not following a pattern, right, not following a model, what he called an archetype, but not in a Jungian sense, just a model, would be profane. All activities, all things that we do that are following a model are sacred, whether it be planting, harvesting, you know, being given in, in marriage or, or taking in, taken in marriage. All these things are sacred. And Jesus said that he never saw, did anything, uh, save he saw the Father do it. So he just seems like he's really following a model and not trying to be an individual. So again, there's just a little bit of a tension between our very American religion with this very individualistic idea. And by the way, this is this is something where Latter-day Saints in other countries might actually differ with us if they come from more collectivist countries. Ours is a very individualistic country in that sense. So I just feel I feel like there's a tension there, and I'd like to to explore it, hold it. What do you think? I, I mean, I love that idea, and I'm I'm glad you grabbed it um, because I, I can feel that same thing. Even when I was saying it, I'm like, well, how do we decide? How do we decide what is part of our our innate nature and what is what is added to that through our experiences, uh, our influences, our environment, whatever, that's, that's tough work to try to figure that out. But I think it's worthwhile, right? I mean, you talked about different aspects of even deity. So that's interesting because I mean, you, could, you could very easily say, you know, God is just this very simple individual being that has one character that is it's truth, it's goodness, whatever. But even just naming those two things means that there's aspects, there's different viewpoints from which to to look at that that personality of God. And I think the same is true for us. So trying to figure out, maybe, maybe it's true identity versus false identity as opposed to true self versus false self. I, I don't know, but I like this idea and the tension that you identified and trying to identify which of those it is. And really, how do you go about doing that? It's the process that's most important. So if we were to open up that line of reasoning, what is that process for identifying what are the true and, and I, don't, I don't even want to say false. I, I, I'd rather say innate and additive or something like that, aspects of our personality and, and identity. Like how do we go about analyzing or, or even identifying those? Well, if we would be okay with with true and false identities, then we might say that the true identity is innate and the false identity is additive. But then again, there's that tension, right? I sense maybe you're saying something like these additive identities may not be, um, you know, there may not be something that we brought with us, but it may be something that we take with us. Yeah, they might not be negatives. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, part of the journey we're on here being on Earth and going through this process is to is to actually gain something, gain through the experience of living. And part of that journey is gaining different, whether it's skills or uh, modes of relating to one another, 
modes of understanding each other. Like all of these things are additive. Now I can see a danger in, in making them a primary identity versus being subservient to kind of like our innateness, our, our true nature. And so maybe it's less about identifying things as either black and white and instead seeing them in, in sort of this spectrum or hierarchy even of what is my most important aspect or of myself. And then, and then I think it's much easier to, to go down the line in rank order and say, well, I know I'm a child of God. I think maybe that's the most important thing about me. And so at that level, we start to relate with our, our brothers and sisters, our, these people that surround us in, in a very general sense, making it easier to, to love one another. And then you work down from there and maybe it's those subservient identities that we really need to start evaluating and decide, are these worth it? Do they bring me closer or do they separate me from the love of God and the love of my fellow man? Maybe that's a process. That's a really important question. You know, so there, there are a couple of, of ancient ideas that I want to go into. But first, let me say to try to hold that tension again, maybe there is a sense in which the the natural man is one that's made up of false identities right and 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 is thus an enemy of god but there is a question right that's a valid question to ask if i'm here to gain experience and i'm an eternal being if there's something i take with me then and it doesn't necessarily have to be unique right it could be that we all are to learn to be one right we have been told this so maybe in that sense but then the question is do we have to be, does unity mean uniformity? And we've, we've talked about this and we've said we don't think that unity means uniformity. And Richard Rohr is someone who we've mentioned who goes into this too. But these two ancient ideas that have shown up for me in this conversation are one, the question of nature versus nurture, right? That question of whether who we are, uh, whether there's some kind of innate being that we have that's, that's unique and that's always there or whether who we are is a question of our nurture in which case there are these identities that we add on and by the way so i i want to go into my personal story i have i've gone through some radical shifts in identity i've taken on identities and shed them and that has given me the experience and and of course being contemplative about it has given me the experience of understanding or at least questioning what's me and what's not me what's really not a part of who i am the second ancient idea that shows up for me in this conversation is the is the idea of education, right? So education comes from the Latin exducare, which means to lead out of. And there's two ways that that can be interpreted. One way is you're being led out of ignorance into knowledge, which means we're, we're filling the bucket. We're going to put information into you. Another way, the platonic way, is to say that you can't actually teach somebody something they don't already know, that it's actually remembering right? Remembering, just like we've talked about with, with the sacrament, right? To bring the things back together again, to make you aware of who and what you already know you are. Bring the parts of the body back into the whole. Yeah. So uh, something you said earlier made me, made me think of a friend of mine, and I hope he doesn't mind me bringing this up. Uh, yeah, I don't think he will. So a friend of mine, Marvin Perkins, who he's, he's probably most well-known in LDS circles for his work on blacks in the scriptures. Um, being an African-American man himself, he's, he's you know, had periods of time when he was in distress in, in the way that he read the Book of Mormon. And, 
And so he started looking for another way to understand them, and he, and he came up with this video series, which is all online now. You can go to blacksandthescriptures.com and, and listen to it. It's great stuff. But um, the reason I bring this up is you highlighted for me this idea that there are kind of like general secular ways to relate to others, and then there's more like peculiar ways to relate to those within a, a clan or a group. And they they all might be healthy in some respect, and they all might be unhealthy in some in some respect. And it's just a matter of identifying those. So Marvin is unique because not only does he have this peculiar way of trying to relate to other Latter Day Saints by putting this this lecture series together on blacks and the scriptures and and about priesthood bands and that sort of thing, but he also has a foundation that's dedicated to this idea that you brought up, which was unity without necessarily having uniformity. And that's called the B1 Foundation, I think, is what he refers to it as. So I love that idea because he's holding two truths that are like, you know, coexistent, which is he wants to be more unified with his particular group, which is Latter-day Saints, while at the same time being one or unified with non-Latter-day Saints in a general sense or in a secular sense through his other foundation. And so you can hold both of these at the same time. And so in a sense... It's it's almost as if he's shedding his identity by taking on additional identity. So that's an interesting thought, too. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the question of skin color. You know, one question we can ask is, if our true identity is as children of God, then does this color of our skin matter? Is that something that, is that, you know, something that distinguishes me from someone else in a true identity? Sure, you know, culturally, um, in a worldly sense, there may be a distinction that's perceived there. But again, is that really a true distinction? Yeah. And usually that's only in combination with something else. So like culturally, only if you're from the same geography, right? Because, I mean, you can take sure. Africans and you can take African-Americans and culturally they're going to have very little in common. Um, and so it's not the skin color necessarily that, that, that joins them together over some, some unique connection. Uh, it may be, I don't know, but that's not a, nece- a necessity. Whereas, you know, a, a black African American person coming in contact with another African American person, they're immediately going to have some connection because of the cultural history of blacks in America. So that's just an interesting thing. Um, I, I'm glad you brought it up because there's so many ways in which we we separate ourselves or we join together with other groups that then you know, group off from the larger populace and, and somehow form some kind of a clan or a group identity. There's many ways we do that. Skin color is one, geography is one. Language. Um, nationality is one, ethnicity, language, right? There's so many ways. It might, it might even be a system of beliefs, you know, political or otherwise. Religion. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, and so the question is, when we are, when we are distinguishing ourselves from others— and see, there's othering as part of this, right? This conversation, and we are, and we're getting into groups based on any of these characteristics or, you know, categories that you've mentioned. Is that, is that based on true identity? And I think the answer is no. You know, religion, perhaps, yeah. So religion, perhaps, you know, I know in particular, obviously, you know, Judaism was meant to be, or was understood at least by Jews to be exclusive to their own ethnicity, right? Christianity is a continuation in some sense of that. It it opened up more, but you know, really Islam comes along and the idea of Islam is that it really doesn't matter what 
race, what skin color, what none of that matters. That it's the brotherhood of all mankind. Now, of course, in in reality and practice, it's not always that way. So it's interesting because religion is trying to to unite us under this concept that we are gods and that we are and that we become one, that we are one with him or that we become one with him, and yet here we have all this division based on religion. So I think this is a really good uh, way to think about this I, this conversation, right? And you and I have are converts, and so we've, in my experience, in my own experience, being a convert, being multilingual, being multicultural. Having again taken on and shed new identities, you know, I've just had so much experience that I can just look at these. That I can, in a contemplative way, I can step back and say, "Now wait a minute, you know, this is this is what it means to." So I know what religion is. I've studied religion in and of itself as I've practiced both as I've practiced different religions as a Lutheran who converted to Mormonism or Latter Day Saintism. And as someone who studies Islam and other religions, you start to get a sense of what religion is. And then language, another way that we, sep- that we separate ourselves or group ourselves or, or distinguish ourselves from others and, and become into groups with other people based on that. You know, I grew up into cultural, same thing, culture. I grew up partly in the United States, partly in Venezuela. I've lived in the Middle East. I've studied, you know, I learned English and Spanish as a child. One of my parents is Venezuelan, one is American, you know, so you start to, and I lived here and I lived there and I lived in the Middle East and you just start to get a sense of, oh, there are just different ways to do this and you're, you become less sure that yours is the only way. Well, you become aware that there are other ways, first of all, and, and you realize there's not one and there's not just one way. There's not the, you, the, only, the only true and living way to do things upon the face of the earth, right? There are different ways to do it. I remember thinking, this is just, <laughs> I, I don't know why this comes up. It's just, well, I know why, because it's the thing, right? This is it. If it comes up, it's the thing. So being in Italy, you know, here we have those automatic sinks that turn on, except that they don't. You know what I mean? Like they, they don't actually, you're trying to move your hands around and figure out where do I need to put my hands to make this thing work? Well, in Italy, I just stepped up to the sink and stepped on something with my foot that turned the water on. And when I stepped away, the water turned off. And you think this is brilliant, right? This is this works. But there's so many things that we do differently in terms of even construction. You know, people come to America from other countries where we build with cinder blocks and think, really, this is a wall? I can I can put my fist through this wall. What is this, right? And then when they, see, when they see the frames of the houses, it's like making a house out of matchsticks or something is how it occurs for us. I've always been envious of windows in Europe. Yeah, the, I get that. <laughs> I just love them. The way they open up and the sturdiness and the construction of them to the point where I ordered all new windows for my house that were as close as I could get to European windows. You know, but you bring up a point, Chris, that about, you know, this, con- this contemplative way of seeing the world only comes through exposure. Like you really have to... You have to experience these things so that you can step back and evaluate them in the context of each other and, and where they come from. And we, had, we did an episode a while back called Cosmic Consciousness that was all about that kind of 10,000-foot view of the world, right, which you can only have if, if you're aware of what's around you. So really, step one in this process, if we're looking for a process or a method at all in evaluating our identities, would be to experience things. And then take a step back and evaluate them, right? Yeah, I would agree. You can't you can't sort of start by 
evaluating your identity, right? Or your identities, or because you're not, you're not aware necessarily. There's this idea of being a fish in water. I love that. And, you know, the other issue too, is you're evaluating things out of context. Like they're so abstract to you. You can, you can read about the Middle East and the conflicts that are going on over there, but you're your understanding and awareness of, of the actual conflict is going to be expanded if you're there. Exactly. And so who would you rather get opinions from? Some, you know, newspaper article of someone who's never been there and is just reporting events third hand or someone who's boots on the ground, you know? So that's the kind of experience that I'm talking about is being open to that so that you can evaluate things in their proper context. Exactly. I have a couple of personal experiences to, to illustrate this point. Both, you know, it's th- experiences I've had and experiences I haven't had, and how I've noticed these things, you know, as I've been able to contemplate these things. So, first of all, I was in the Middle East at the beginning of the Arab Spring. And so it's, but, but I wasn't, see, notice I say I was in the Middle East, even if I said I was in Syria, I wasn't in all of Syria. And what was happening wasn't happening everywhere, right? It was happening in, in, in particular places. And I saw it on TV just like everybody else, but I was closer to it, you know. I could. I was in uh, Hama when when Tahrir Square blew up. You know, when 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 things started happening in Cairo, and I remember going back to from Damascus to Amman, Jordan, to catch my flight back to the United States. Talking to the taxi driver, I learned that there had been some skirmishes on the border. But again, this is not something that I saw, and it's only on the border. It wasn't happening in Amman. It wasn't happening in Damascus. It was happening on the border. And when I got back to JFK, I found out about, oh wait, it wasn't Cairo when I was in Hama, it was um, Tunisia, I think. And then when I got back to JFK, it was Cairo. And then you hear, after I come home, that Syria just descends into chaos. But it's not Syria, right? There's war in Syria, we say. Well, there's war in certain neighborhoods and certain cities in Syria, right? So I'm not there to actually know what's going on. I'm not on the ground. And I also remember seeing videos on YouTube where you had a guy standing around smoking a cigarette like nothing's going on. And then, and this, I don't think you were supposed to see this is the idea of this video is you're, you're being shown something you weren't supposed to see. And then on cue, the, you know, you get this scenario, which I think it was the part you were supposed to see where, you know, where they're shooting and, and all this stuff's going on. And then, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's, it's a show that's being uh, enacted that isn't, that, that is masking a reality that you're, again, you weren't supposed to see, but it's showing up at the beginning of the video. And the other example I have is from is that I've been guilty. I've been guilty of thinking that I know anything about Saudi Arabia when I've never been there. And I've talked to people who, who come from there, and I've watched documentaries, and I found contradictions between what they said uh, about their country and what I... So, But I don't know. I've never been there. I can't know unless I go. I love that you're using the the news as as sort of a metaphor or, you know, these kind of like live reporting from such and such place. That's kind of like a metaphor, honestly, because there's there's always someone framing what it is that you're consuming. And that framing is is meant to either encourage or discourage you from a certain uh, feeling or action. And, you know, I, I get this, I get this sense in which if there's someone that's recommending something to me, if they're doing it from experience, that carries so much more weight and credibility to me than someone who's who's just issuing, you know, kind of blanket warnings. And so, you know, you see this play out in the world too. It's like, you know, people who have been through addiction recovery, for instance, 
to me, they have so much credibility about the danger of drug use. Um, you know, and that doesn't mean everyone should have to go out and experience it. It's just where are we getting our news from? Where are we, where are we getting our recommendations from? And this isn't meant to be a commentary on media. It's just a metaphor for the, the larger reality of where do we get our marching orders from? I, I would go into media, though, Riley, because actually, if, if I think in terms of advertisement, I was listening to a book uh, to preview it as a possibility for teaching writing to my kids. I can't remember the name of the book. I think it was something like, it's either the writing practice or the writer's practice. It's a red book. And, you know, I was looking at it as a homeschool dad is something I might use. It creates writing experiences. I might use it for my kids. And there's a part of it that went into evaluating ads, you know, TV commercials, ads, these kind of things. And there's a subtext to those, it was pointing out. This book was pointing out that there's a subtext to those ads. And the subtext is your life really sucks and your job really sucks. Something like that, right? And you need to buy this stuff so that you can, uh, you know, because then it would be less sucky if you just bought these things. So let me ask you a question about an ad, okay? A type of ad. You've watched pharmaceutical ads before. Sure. Every single one of them shows like these happy scenarios where there's a husband and wife and like, I don't know, the husband burns dinner or something and they kind of laugh about it or whatever. But what is the drug that's being sold? Like it's almost, it doesn't pertain to this scenario we're watching play out whatsoever. Um, it, someone could be reading a book and then they look up to their ceiling or something and it could be like an ED drug. We have no idea, right? And so it's, it's what that picture is that's trying to be painted for you is just a means of communicating to you by taking this drug, you will have this kind of life. Or identity. And they might not be connected at all. Yeah, or identity. Like, okay, right. there's if you a, own this car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got like a scene of a backyard barbecue and someone flipping hamburgers and it's, you know, it's a, a blood pressure medication or something like, like who knows, right? But the message is if you, you know, buy this, take this drug, whatever, this ideal life will be yours without making the connection. Exactly. So I think this is where it does relate to identity because a lot of our sense of what our identity should be is it comes from the media, right? And some of it is explicit. Most of it is implicit. And we're not even necessarily aware of it if we're consumers of media. But, you know, I'll give you another example. If you talk about, you know, you talk about these health ads. And by the way, to actually to put a, uh, to underline or underscore that example, remember that at the end of the ad comes the little, the little text that they read really fast. Oh, yeah. That's so, yeah. so there's your, this is your side your, effects your, your, can include right. death. Uh, so here, here's know. the reality uh, to what we just painted this, you know, rosy picture of at least a potential reality that isn't quite so rosy, right? So then there are these advertisements for, you know, that seem to imply if you had this car, you would have this partner, right? If you smoke this cigarette or drink this beer, you will have this lifestyle, right? Those kind of, and so a lot of, I think identity can, it does relate to this, right? It can be pushed on us. A false identities can be pushed on us through advertisement and other forms of media. So, you know, churches use this stuff, and I'm not looking at one church in particular. Really, all of them have some means of advertising what it is they're offering, and it's a lifestyle. It's it's a certain type of life, right? 
and so that can be um, that can be dangerous to to just take that as as the reason for adopting an, an identity um, without putting things under a microscope or or any kind of critical evaluation. Well, yeah, going back to what you said earlier, Riley, because maybe you know maybe the church, whatever church you have in mind, any church that's advertising the lifestyle or the the life that you'll enjoy if you join the church. And, you know, maybe it's true. But the question is, can you know that just because you watched an ad? You, you bring up a really good point, Riley. It's not that different from the other ads we were talking about. So we come back to your point earlier, which is we have to experience things for ourselves. Yeah, and that's, that's and the part that... And we have to that, notice. Absolutely, the awareness, right? So if if a leader comes out and says, be very wary of taking on these additional uh, sources of knowledge or exploring these various sources of knowledge because you're opening yourself up to, you know, the devil or whatever, or, or negative or evil uh, influences. And I've actually heard this as a warning against meditation, which is insane to me, but okay, whatever. Um, that's the kind of stuff I'd be weary of. People who are warning you or, or, you know, disguising their need for exclusive knowledge with, with these warnings. And I would much rather go to someone who has experienced it and just say, what's that like? And if they say, well, I can't really explain it. It can only be experienced. Okay, fine. That, that, that helps me actually. That is helpful. So I, I guess th- this idea of being sheltered or cloistered is is one way to strengthen identity at the expense of learning experience. To keep holding the tension that we've created here, we tend to think that there's sort of a one-size-fits-all answer to things. And so it may be that certain experiences or practices are actually beneficial to some and harmful to others. That's possible. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. seen it. Objective experience, it really isn't a thing because you have subjects everywhere. Everyone, everyone evaluates things subjectively based on their own you know, experiences and, and their own identities and who they are. So there's really no such thing as the one right way to do something. Yeah, so there are two things that you've said that may seem contradictory, but I think are both true at the same time. One is that we should ask others, and, and I mean multiple others about their experience and have them share their own testimony with us, right? Their own experience that they're based on the authority of experience. This is what I think of when I think of authority as experience. And we also have to experience for ourselves. Now, there are certain things we don't have to experience for ourselves, although we can, and we can find out that they were bad experiences. If we have, some of us have to learn the hard way. You know, there are just certain people, and I say this, I say this with confidence because I know I'm one of them. I don't learn by somebody telling me, don't touch the stove, it's hot. I learn by touching the stove. And I have learned, and it has been a painful process, but I have learned and I have grown. And sometimes, I mean, there's just so many things that come to my mind in a conversation like this. Here I'm off on on the idea of we have to trust in God that, I don't know, our children or our spouse or our friend is going to be okay in experiencing what they experience and learning what they need to learn in their own way. And this is an important reminder for all of us, including me, because I also tend to 
to fall for the illusion of control. I'm always seeking after this illusion for control, you know, that I don't have. And, you know, we have the idea of uh, things should be this way and that way. And so this also, this conversation dovetails with our previous conversation, the podcast last week on doubt, and that wasn't the first time we talked about doubt, is to really just look at our experiences, contemplate them, really be aware, you know, and, and intentionally raise our own awareness through contemplation of our experiences and those of others such that we can maybe evaluate them a, l- a little more objectively on the one hand, but again, to hold that tension to realize that there really isn't an objective answer to these questions necessarily, but that we think subjectively too in terms of our own experience and and in terms of the not our own ex- only our own experience, because again, then we have the tendency to project that as though it were objective and should be for others, right? So then we also look at, we have to look at other people's subjective experience and be willing to understand that it's not one size fits all and that we don't have to have uniformity to have unity and that we have to respect, as you say, Riley, others' autonomy, including in spirituality, including in spiritual matters, right? Spiritual autonomy. So what this this opens up for me is, maybe this opportunity to discuss the positives of identity because they can be positive. Like I was, I was in a place, just to go back in my personal history a little bit about uh, how I came into the church and whatnot. Everyone knows if they've listened to the podcast that I also am a convert like you. Before that, I was, uh, I was living La Vida Loca, man. I was, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a crazy kid and exploring some things. Uh, I remember in particular going on a trip with a few buddies to the Bahamas as as a pre twenty one year old and just you know diving headfirst into that whole thing and but I remember coming away from that experience and everyone's had these moments if you've been in that world where you're you know, like hugging a toilet saying I'm never going to do that again and and having the experience of the polar opposite of that going you know full prohibition in in uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints I saw that taking on that identity that was given to me through kind of the word of wisdom and whatnot as being a super, super positive thing for my life. And so I think there are, there are ways in which we can evaluate identity and, and the identities that we take on as being at least short-term positive. And so what I've done now is over the last 20-some years of being, uh, 25 years of being a member of the church, is that I've been able to see not only my previous life and, and the the pitfalls of that, but also the life after and, and the extreme kind of side of, of uh, you know, the, almost the fundamentalist interpretation of word of wisdom, for instance, and say, there's probably, there's probably a middle in that that's, that's still healthy. And, and I'm not sure where that is for each individual, but just seeing the extremes of that, now I have experience with both sides of that. And I can say, okay, I get it. You know, and I can take them for what they are. Like I can see my parents, for instance, who are not members of the church and see their, you know, every morning coffee ritual and just say, eh, not a big deal. Honestly, it probably helps them more than it hurts them. And my, my identity that was created as, as part of my coming into the church and, and surrounded by that, that culture, which is heavily influenced by the word of wisdom. And it's one of the, the things that we're known by. It's, it's seriously an identity within the church. When you ask people what what is a Latter Day Saint, they say, "Oh, they, you know, they don't drink coffee, alcohol. Da, da, da. It's part of our identity." But having now been in that and out that, I can out of that, I can look at people 
in a different light and say, okay, I, I can see the extremes of both and there's probably a healthy way in moderation somewhere that's just fine. And that's just one one example, you know, and, and I could talk for hours about the different types or aspects of that Latter-day Saint identity that I took upon myself over the last 25 years and the positives and negatives. I can see now 25 years in that it's it's probably healthy for me to distance myself a little bit from those uber strong identity forming aspects of the religion and now focus more on kind of the universal love of God and how do I how do I relate to my neighbors now? Like what's the best way to do that? And for me, it means shedding some of those identities. Yeah, your conversation brings us back once again to one of, I think, our, our most mentioned episodes in other episodes of this podcast, which is on the esoteric and the exoteric, right? There's a sense in which we can get caught up in our identities in, in, and especially in, and there's another aspect of this conversation, which is that there are interpretations of what the identities mean. And so you and I have had uh, Latter-day Saint identities for a long time. How long has it been for me? I don't know. I I was 11 when I converted. I'm 52 now. So, you know, but what it means to me to be a Latter-day Saint, and I don't mean, well, even in general, but in the particulars too, what it means to keep the word of wisdom, what it means in particular, what it means to be a Latter-day Saint in general has changed for me. It's changed. And I don't know that I that I, I had it wrong and now I have it right. I could have had it right and had it wrong, but I suspect it's more like I'm looking for that middle ground. I'm looking for that, what Aristotle calls the golden mean between the extremes. And that's virtue, by the way. That That's how he defines virtue. Virtue, not, not chastity in many Latter-day Saints, not all of us actually obviously live in uh, Utah, but in, in Utah, I, I've experienced as a professor of philosophy in Utah, the idea that, that people think that the word virtue means chastity. Chastity is a virtue, it's not virtue. So virtue is this idea of not being, you know, not being too, not going in either direction too far, but finding this golden mean. So for example, to be courageous means not to be too cowardly, but it also means not to be foolhardy. You know, where, where angels fear to tread, fools rush in, and that's foolhardiness. But you also, you have people who are cowardly, right? So somewhere in the middle is courage. And how much, you know, what is the right balance, right? What is the, the right balance is not an easy question, and it's not a one-size-fits-all answer either. We have to find that balance and we have to experience to find that balance. We have to have our own experience to find that own own balance for ourselves. And finding the balance, like I'm relating this to actual balance, like physical balance. I have a balance board. Someone, a friend of mine bought it for me. And it's one of these boards that, that sits on a cylinder and you have to find kind of the middle between them by swaying back and forth. And when I first started, I was like, you know, you put two feet down and instantly you just go boom on one side. It just basically fall to one side or the other. And then I get back on and boom, I fall to the other side. And it's just this, you know, swaying between extremes. And it's, it's only in doing that, that it was, that the experience allowed me to find the middle. Like I had to touch the left. I had to tough, touch to the right in order to know where the middle was and how I had to position myself in order to stay there. And I'm not saying the middle is always the best place to be either, but having the context of the extremes helps you to find your balance. Like as a unique person, where do I belong in, in between the extremes of this, 
you could call it a ray or a, a segment, I guess. You know, if you're looking at it geometrically, you got this segment with two points on the end. Where do I fit in that spectrum or on that segment, right? So I think for a time, and and this is unique to every situation, but for a time it can be helpful to live in extremes. Taking someone out of an extreme of depravity and putting them in an extreme of virtue can be very helpful for that person until it's not, until they become maybe judgmental or exclusive or, you know what I'm saying? So really you have proud, to, proud, exactly. So we can't say that these things are all objectively good or bad, but they're helpful. Experience, generally speaking, is helpful. I love that. They're helpful. Yeah. And as you said, until they're not too, right? You know, there's so much wisdom. When I think, when I think about my grandmother, there's so much wisdom in, in that woman. And she's no longer with us. May she rest in peace. But I speak of that wisdom as present because it's present in me, because she shared it with me. And a lot of it, gosh, some of it just seems like as I've become, you know, as I've trained as a philosopher, I noticed that a lot of it seems Aristotelian. And, you know, something that you said just made me think of my grandmother because she understood. I say she understood as though I think she has the right answer, right? That it's true. And I could be wrong. God knows best, you know, but she understood. She said when I was a, a teenager and I was sowing my wild oats, she said, let him sow his wild oats. That's just, you know, that's just how it is. That's just how it, it, it just has to be that way. And by the way, maybe she was saying that about me. Maybe that's not true of everyone. And maybe this doesn't strike uh, others as true. But in my experience, it was true. I just don't see how someone who, who learns by burning himself can do it any other way. And that may not be you, and it may not be your son. And that's important to say, that it may not be you, it may not be your son, it may be them. That may be their their personality. And by you pressing them not to do that over and over and over and over, you're really just distancing yourself from them. When it, in, I mean, to be more, most effective, the best thing might be just to love them. Let them know, hey, when you finally decide to get out of this mode, whatever you're in, that I don't understand and I don't condone, and you know that. But once you finally decide to get out of it, I'm here. I'm ready. And so just know you can talk to me at any time about anything. And, you know, I, I love that approach, not just to parenting, but just, you know, relationships with people in general. Uh, you and I had Shiloh on the program, Shiloh Logan, a, a few weeks back, and uh, he was talking about his faith journey and how it's led him at this point to lead, to distance himself from the church, to leave the church. And what good would it do us at that moment to offer, you know, lectures and platitudes about what he should do and who he should be and how he should act? This is Shiloh's journey. And he's going to figure it out Shiloh's way through his experiences. And so who are we to deny that to anybody? You know, the I think one of the most off-quoted quotes on this podcast, and this is by me always, is Rumi's, there are as many paths to God as there are people on earth. Paths, right? We're each on our own path. There are as many paths to God as there are people on earth. And this is a, this is a mystic saying this, right? Trust me, in Islam, there there's ISIS too, right? And they have the, the one and only, you know, true and living path on the face of the earth, as far as they're concerned, is their path. But that's not the mystics. And so we're here to talk about what we usually don't call mysticism, but the contemplative tradition is the mystical tradition, and every religion has it. In some, it's less obvious. In ours, 
we took on, you know, originally you and Shiloh took this on, and I took it on at Shiloh's request when he bowed out to to take upon ourselves in some sense to bring out this this aspect of our own tradition or to foster this aspect in our own tradition. And so that's what we're doing here. That's what we've been doing, God willing. Well, in mysticism, kind of the, I don't know if you want to call it the official definition, but essentially what it is, it's it's the belief that the most powerful thing that you can that you can believe or have is an experience with God, right? So the mystics are always pushing for experience, more experience. And, right. and so really as opposed it, to dogma, yeah, as yeah. opposed to creeds, as opposed to articles of faith, as opposed to beliefs. Right. Experience. Experience. And so really at that point it's more about how you define God than it is about what's, you know, good or bad. It's like Okay, I, I want to have more experiences. There are some experiences I don't want to have, obviously. And and I only know about that through experience or through other people's experiences. And you may have them regardless, even if you don't want to have them. Yeah, you don't get to choose all the time, right? But But you're at least trying to avoid them. You're trying to either avoid them or or, you know, lean into them depending on what they are or minimize them. Yeah. Sure. And Furthermore, you're trying to figure out where God is in those experiences. And I think that's what the mystics are doing is saying, is God in that? Is God in that? Like, is there, is God in starvation in, you know, third world countries? Is, is God in the capitalist system? Is God in, you know, our church? Is God in that church? And you're trying just to figure out in the context of all these experiences, this is the mystical path, figuring out where, where is God? My sense, Riley, is that the mystics would all answer, and I mean from any and all religions, yes, God is in that. God is in all of that. And so if you think about the opposite extreme, again, the dogmatic extreme, the, the articles of faith, the creeds, the, the dogma, right? Those answers are, no, God is not in this, or he's not in that, he's only in this, Right? And they may be right to some extent, right? Like there's, there's, there's a sense in which obviously those things are the inheritance of, of generations of experience. And the kind of God someone wants to experience is found in keeping those creeds. But there's a whole set of people who, who say, well, my God is bigger than that. And I want to experience more than that. Well, go ahead then. And you'll find him, you'll find the God you want to experience, even outside the creeds. It sounds like you're saying, tell me if I'm misunderstanding you, it sounds like you're saying something like, it makes me think of my grandmother again, that there's, there are people who have been, you know, experiencing God since long before you and I came around, and they've passed down their, their wisdom, you know, the, the, the experiences they've had, they've shared them. Again, that's not having an experience ourselves. Right, but maybe the sharing of their experience causes us to seek out our own experience. But there's wisdom in the experiences that have been passed down from our from our forefathers, right, from our ancestors, and we can they can help us at least. You know, if we're not if we're willing to listen when someone says, "Don't touch the stove; it's hot. You'll burn yourself." Right, then we can actually not have to have the bad experiences, meaning the experiences that are going to actually take us away from God. Right? Well, I think of that. Uh, so good and bad have to be defined, right? I'm saying here that it, that it's what what is the good that we seek in this conversation is to be close to God. 
it, to me, it comes back to that, that scripture in Malachi that talks about turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. You know, we should look to them, meaning the fathers, right? The past generations, we should look to them for their experiences. Our hearts should be turned to them and get as much benefit as, as we can from their, the culmination of all of their generations of experience. That should mean something to us. And likewise, it should mean something to them to see the wisdom and beauty in the experience of a child who doesn't have any of that context or history. Like the newness. There's the tension again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's, there's newness there. There's beauty. And God is in all of it. There's beauty in the first experience of something, just as there's beauty in the thousandth experience of something. Yeah. Riley, for me, on a personal note, I've gone again through some some radical changes in terms of the roles that I play or the places where I've played them, and I've come to a place recently where this this has become uh, something that's been on my mind. And as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, you know, I've just I've just had to take off some of these hats that I wear and look at them and say, is this who I am? And how do I distinguish between is who I am, what I do? You know, we have this primary song, teach me all that I must. Didn't it used to be no, and then it became do, right? And, and maybe it should be be, right? There's, there's knowing, there's doing, there's being. They're not all the same. And so who am I? Am I what I do? And so even if I end up with the same hats, you know, as I called them, the same identities, I just think it's valuable. The contemplative practice is to take off the hat and examine it, to look at it, and to say, is this ha- is the thing that I do? Because maybe I have to do it, but that doesn't mean it's who I am. Or, you know, are you, Aristotle says, you are what you repeatedly do. Right? His, his um, theory of happiness has everything to do with habituation. And he says, you are what you repeatedly do. And so excellence or virtue, because it's really the same word that's being translated. It's from arete is the Greek. So excellence or virtue is not an act, but a habit. And so I have to look at these identities and I have to consider, you know, I, I recently, I, you know, I, it's been, I, I quit social media years ago and recently I opened up Twitter and I saw my old um, bio, you know, you have a little bio and I thought, that's not, that's not who I am. That's not, what is that? And I, I deleted it. And then I had the hardest time writing anything. And I think I eventually came up with something. And, and, I'm, not, and, and I'm, I'm not satisfied. I'm not happy with it. It's not. And we tell ourselves. So this goes back to, again to the conversation that Shiloh and I had when he substituted once for you, Riley, after I was your co-host already. And that's on the stories that we tell ourselves. So we can, these identities that we're talking about can be these stories that we tell ourselves about who we are that aren't really who we are. They're just stories. And again, some of them, they're things you have to do, but does that mean, are you going to, you know, what happens if you, so you be a father, right? Well, what happens, God forbid, your children die. Now, who are you? And this may be more applicable to, to mothers. I guess it depends on, I'm a full-time stay-at-home homeschool dad, but typically, you know, it's mom who's, who's in my place, Right. And if, you're, and, if you're, and if her children died, God forbid, then who is she? Right? If you've dedicated your, your life to your spouse and your children and they're gone, 
then who are you? What are you left with? So, so that must not be your true identity in some sense, but it's still something that you do or something that you are. And, and maybe you take that experience with you. I'm, I'm trying to hold the tension, Riley. Well, and maybe a more common experience, one that's probably shared by the majority of people out there is when you become an empty nester. Who are you at that point? You've, you've spent the last you know 20 plus years or whatever being a full-time father or a full-time mother and who are you now in the context of not only your own personality, but maybe in context to your spouse? Like, you know, if, if your Twitter bio says something like husband, father, Latter-day Saint, dot, 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 what does that actually say about you and how you operate in each one of those identities? Like, do the identities define you or do you define the identities? So this, you know, we've kind of talked around this a lot. And and maybe it's opened up some avenues of thought for our listeners. But for me, the main thing it's it's causing me to do is is maybe even just write this stuff down. Like if I were to evaluate myself right now, what are my what are my identities? How would I, I I don't have a Twitter bio, but if I had one, what would it say? And how would I define myself in relationship? Don't go there, Riley. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not not really planning on it. I'm kidding. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. It's a useful exercise, right? I mean, I've sat with that. Again, if you went there now, I think I did end up writing something, but I take it back. I should go delete it, you know, because it's not, and, and it's, I don't know how I ended up putting something at all, because where I really am is I'm sitting with, and not just sitting with, it's not like I've reached emptiness, but I'm emptying, I'm emptying. I'm trying to let go of all these things that I would normally put in one of those bios, at the same time that I realize that I am doing some of these things, but do I, am I going to be, do I have to be, is it that I am those things or am I just doing them? And I'm trying to just be with not having something in that to fill in that blank and just, to, just trying that on. And I'm relating this back again to the, to the first beatitude of being poor in spirit, of just emptying myself of all these identities. And by the way, maybe in the end, I pick them back up again. Maybe I don't pick up some of them. Maybe I had it right all along. But the contemplative practice is one of, of asking the question, of looking into it, of finding out, of trying it on, of having an experience. You know, there's kind of a subtle and not so subtle way of talking about this, this phase that you and I are in. You know, Richard Rohr, to, to put it the subtly, subtle way, is, is he calls it the first and second half of life. And, and we're in this phase now, which I would call, you know, at least the beginning, if not solidly into the second half of life, where we're we're more kind of looking at everything with more context and experience and saying, yeah, that's part of me, that's part of me, that I want no part of. And and we can just evaluate things in the context of more experience. There's a book that's pretty popular out now called The Art of Not Giving a F. <laughs> um, I won't say the word, obviously. but The subtle um, art, Mark Manson. The subtle art of not giving a F. <laughs> And and they're kind of in that same space, or at least he that he seems to be encouraging that same space, which is you know just just do you you know and and don't give a whatever what other people think or say or about you, because their representation of you is not you, and you know better because you've got that experience now and you have that confidence of experience of having lived a certain amount of time, and so it feels good to be in this this phase where I can look at all these identities and you know on a on a pretty short notice, I can decide, hey, I'm just going to, I'm going to shed this identity and not feel any sense of, you know, guilt or regret about it because I've, I've lived it fully, you know? And, and the same goes for, for the things that I've not experienced yet. I can, I can look at them and say, yeah, I'd like to try that, you know? 
and I'm not necessarily addressing any specific, you know, needs or wants to uh, go off the rails in terms of some of our commandments or anything. I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about the the ease with which I can live my life now, having experienced a few things. Well, what if you were, Riley? I mean, we could say it was a mistake, right? Which is like, a it's a misstep, right? But you stepped it and you missed. You know, what is sin? We've talked about what, what, what sin is. It's missing the mark, right? And so you, you took a shot, you were pointing in the wrong direction, you missed the mark, you overshot it, you undershot it, you weren't even facing the target, whatever, right? There's repentance. You can turn back, you can see God and yourself and the universe and the relationship among the three in a new way. And it may still be the, it may still not be the right way. You know, I mean, do, do, do I fully comprehend God? No way, man. That just, I don't know. You know, I've experienced God in so many ways. In fact, I've experienced God in enough ways to know that they're just glimpses, each one of them, right? I'm reminded of that, that Sufi story of the, um, of the blind men touching different parts of the elephant. Do you know the story? You know, one has the trunk and one has the leg and one has the ear and their experience of the elephant is different. Well, I've been all of those men at the same time and had all these different experiences of God. And, and I know that uh, enough to know that none of them is, even if I add them all up, there's still more right, to God than I've experienced. Yeah, well, even if you add them up, you don't know how to how to construct them into a perfect picture of God. Like you can put that blindfold on and say, okay, that's a leg, that's a trunk, that's an ear. But with the blindfold on, you don't know what you're touching, really. I mean, you can try to construct them in your mind, but that's very much how, how God is constructed for us. They're, they're glimpses. And we each come to our unique ideas about that through experience, our unique experiences. So, you know, I've enjoyed this conversation. I think what it does for me again is it's at least opening up the idea that, hey, you need to you need to evaluate this stuff and think about this. Who are you really? And who are you in your own eyes? Who are you in God's eyes? Who are you in the eyes of those who surround you? And and really how much does that matter to you? You know, that that's that's basically what I've come to. And listen to the answer and and, and from God, right? Don't let advertisers tell you who you are, or who you should be, or, or even your family members, or even the church. I mean, you can, you can actually, you can make of church, you can make of God, you can make of anything an idol. This was the point, I think, of Stephen Covey's book, um, The Divine Center, that unless you're making Christ the center of your life, that, there, that even the church can be a false center, right? So look to Christ for answers. And, and and find them, you know, in an experience of your own. Love it. Well, Chris, do you have anything you want to finish on or feel good about this? I think, you know, we've we found a good place to, to end the conversation in that invitation. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. 